0: To inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clyde Bilt Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook, and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26.
1: So
0: our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth% a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake.
1: Working my way.
0: hello
2: hi there sophie good to see you again
0: good to see you too it's the the end of the week can you believe it
2: yes indeed it's gone in the blink of an eye
0: it has gone in the blink of an eye though so much has happened indeed indeed full heads filled with uh i think still unknown for me at the moment Mm -hmm. how are you feeling about this week
2: i'm feeling um slightly better now because now we are in what i'm more accustomed to which is the routine of the negotiations we had a huge hype with the heads of government and Boris Johnson and everybody coming in, the world media covering it as some sort of a big event, which it wasn't. They came, they gave speeches, they went away. They didn't move the dial very much. Uh, Now is when we get into the details of the negotiations and come up with hopefully something very substantive at the end of next week, not this week, but next week. So we have a a fair uh, amount of time left to do a lot of detailed work
0: so what have we got on the table after this the three days that have not been the world leader summits, but has been the kind of
2: the well we've got a lot of uh what i would call um, public relations statements from every leader so every leader has basically made a speech saying how good he or she or her country or his country has been and they've all done something all right so i don't want to discredit them to say they haven't done anything. Everybody's done something. But when you add up the something everybody has done, it doesn't add up to very much. Um, Because we do have a hard ceiling. We have to stay below 1.5 degrees. And if you add up what everybody is doing, we are headed for 2.7 degrees. That's just not good enough. So they can pat themselves on the back and say, we were going to 3, but now we're going to 2.7. Not good enough. We need to be below 1.5. And if you don't get below 1.5, you have not done enough. Mm. And so not doing enough, but doing something is not going to get you any kind of praise from me, at least.
0: Mm. So to get to 1.5, how do we know We, how do we know what each country has to reduce to get there?
2: We know that, uh, and they know that, but they're not doing it, right. or they're not doing it fast enough. Right. And so one of the things that we, when I say we, the vulnerable countries have not even just asked, we are demanding that instead of every five years, which is how the current Paris Agreement is structured, every five years, countries are supposed to come back with better, more ambitious goals. We said, we can't, it's an emergency. You can't wait for five years. Come back every year. So we're going to be doing this every year? <laughs> every year. Every year you ratchet up and it's a voluntary basis. So, you know, you you know you're what you're supposed to do. You come and report on what you're doing and do better because what you've brought to Glasgow in November 2021 is not good enough and you know that. Mm-hmm. All right. You're, you're not claiming that it is good enough. You're just saying we're doing a little bit. Well, next year, come back and do more. And then the year after that, come back and do more. Otherwise, we have five years for them to just not do anything, and then report and come back and say, "Well, we didn't do anything; we didn't do enough." Again, mm. that's not good enough. Mm.
0: So, what's on the cards for this week? What's what's going to happen?
2: Well, the what what now is happening, and there is a, a shift in that, is on the money side. All right, on the money side, there was a promise of a hundred billion dollars a year uh, from 2020 onwards. They failed to deliver that and they accept that they failed. Um, they failed to deliver 2021. They have come to Glasgow or they came to Glasgow a few days ago with a plan. The plan says we'll start giving it in 2023. All right. And we said, that's not a plan. <laughs> that, that's totally un- unacceptable. So we, again, speaking for the vulnerable countries, have asked for them to give us what we are calling a delivery plan for 500 billion over five years. That includes 2020 when you didn't give enough, 2021 when you didn't give enough, 2022, 2023 and 2024. That's five years. Which means you have to give more in the next few years to make up for what you didn't give in the previous years. But we'll accept that. But give us 500 over five years and a delivery plan. Exactly who's going to give how much, how are you going to give it? And then there's a an ancillary demand from the vulnerable countries, which is that half the money has to come for adaptation for the vulnerable. In the previous rounds, only 20% of the money came for adaptation. That's not acceptable. No. All right. So the vulnerable countries who are suffering the impacts of climate change need half your money. And every country needs to make that clear. So each country, the UK, America, France, whoever is giving money, half of it needs to be for adaptation. And you have to tell us who's getting it and how are they getting it. Because right now, we have no clue what, where the money you are spending or claiming to spend is going. Mm-hmm. It's very untransparent.
0: Mm-hmm. And is there any way of making that a kind of a mandated or... A...
2: That's what we're hoping for. And what the good news is, we're hearing that they are hearing this really? and are trying to come up with the money. Right, right. So I expect that there will be some good news on the climate finance side by the end of next week.
0: Great. I don't know where they're finding all of this finance, but hey...
2: Well, it, to be honest, finance is always available. Yeah. You know, governments have magic money trees. They can print money. Um, it's always a matter of political will mm. what they print it for. So COVID-19 yeah. hit them. They printed a trillion dollars. They just printed the money and spent it. You know, when they want an aircraft carrier, they print $10 billion. They want an aircraft carrier. They print the money. Mm. They can have an aircraft carrier because that's what they want.
0: Where do you see, talking about aircraft like Jeff Bezos and all of this kind of... Jeff Bezos and his fellow um, other business leaders? Well,
2: I think, you know, the billionaires of this world have a very, very big uh, responsibility, in my view. Mm. Some of them take that responsibility seriously. So, you know, they put huge amounts of money into charity. Bill Gates, for example... Bezos has a fund as well. But to my mind, um, they, their, their capacity to do much more is very big. I mean, they're very, very bright people. They became billionaires because they're bright people. Mm -hmm. They have billions of dollars of, at their disposal. Uh, Then that's why they can, they can do things that, um, most other people can't. And as it happens, during the COVID crisis over the last two years, they actually made more money. Everybody else lost money, lost jobs, lost money, lost their health, died. Billionaires became trillionaires. They sat at home and they made money.
0: Exactly, exactly.
2: So to me, um, they don't even have to sacrifice what they had before. Just give us some of the money they made in the last two years to solve problems. And we can use that money to solve problems. Thank you so much. Useful? Very
0: useful. Good, good. Next, we'll move over to our part on the Green Zone and Fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow.
3: Um, thank you so much, Sega. Thank you, Selena, and thanks to all the contributors to the video that we just saw. Um, thanks to all of you for coming. Thanks to everyone who's tuning in. So, I'm Chiara from the NGO Julie's Bicycle. Um, we work to mobilize arts and culture on climate action. We were founded from within the UK music industry, but now work across the arts internationally. So, nearly 15 years ago, Julie's Bicycle set out with three beliefs that still guide us to this day that culture and the arts have to be at the heart of the global response to the climate and ecological crisis, that bringing our collective imagination and joint purpose to this challenge is the most valuable and inspiring work that we could be doing as a creative community, and that action comes in many guises and everything counts. So this moment where international climate negotiations take center stage is filled with renewed courage and greater resolve. We can remodel our societies And our patterns of consumption and the licenses we give to polluters to operate at our expense, or we cannot. We can address issues of equity and justice in how we make those choices, or we cannot. These are cultural questions, they're not questions of technology or finance. They are questions about what it is that we value, uh, what future we want, and what world we can imagine. And all around this city, and in cities around the world, and outside cities around the world, the creative community is showing up on climate action. Some of them are doing so very loudly and visibly, um, but many, many more are doing it, knitted into their communities, working at the local level, weaving us together, often much more invisibly. Artists using their platforms to make their own and others' voices heard. Reflecting, documenting, and in dialogue with the changes unfolding through our homes and through our ecosystems. Moulding grief and anger into courage and power. Artists inventing and experimenting with the technologies that we need for tomorrow and unearthing the knowledge that we already had about living as part of nature. Venues, festivals, museums, galleries recreating themselves as laboratories for a new zero-carbon future and as places of refuge in our tilting world helping people connect with their own creativity, their own sense of agency, and turning into active creators, shaping our material and conceptual worlds. Making and sustaining communities, connecting people, giving us freedom of thought, helping us reframe challenges, see things from new perspectives, and connecting us with others on a much deeper level. Giving us permission to think beyond where we are now, exploring those new realities and possibilities. at its heart gives us different ways of knowing, and culture emerges from all our many different ways of being. And in this moment where our futures are so uncertain, when we have to remake everything, this creative process that doesn't always pretend to have all the answers, but that helps us find those new truths and transformation and trust in each other is more essential than ever. And yet, too often, it still feels like the creative community is showing up in spite of While finance and energy and politics debate in official halls, we work in the spaces between. Sometimes being outside the system is exactly what's needed, but what if we reimagine a COP process shaped instead around culture? Last week, Julie's Bicycle published Culture of the Missing Link in partnership with the British Council's Climate Connection Programme. We've spent the last months speaking to artists, culture ministers and cultural organisations around the world, from the UK to Indonesia, Turkey, Nigeria, Colombia, Italy and many more. Today is our call to action to mobilise culture ministers at national levels to meet the climate challenge head on. Governments are still missing the opportunity to link culture policy with environmental policy, leaving a huge gap to make sure the cultural sector is aligned with international climate commitments and unlocking the true potential of this creative climate movement. When we're embodying climate action, that's when we can get really disruptive. The culture sector needs to be fully represented alongside other sectors of the economy and society in designing effective climate policy. The creative community is here and we are ready it's an awesome, deeply creative, and deeply ethical task, and we have no choice but to rise to it with as much energy and joy as we can. Ez, um,
4: over to you. So, uh, Ez is responsible for really amazing, spectacular shows. Um, and I really wanted to ask you, first of all, about what you think the challenges are, because you're right at, the, at the, literally the coalface of the kind of spectacular our expectations of these amazing experiences shows, but also crucially uh, given that today Julie's Bicycle is sending a call out to culture ministers and environment ministers to start to be in dialogue where culture can align with climate science, and do things differently, as well as think things differently. I wanted to ask what you think are are going to be the biggest challenges uh, for uh, you, an artist, a creator, a producer, uh, on, on some of the world's biggest stages. You're on mute.
5: Start by unmuting. Um, Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for inviting me to join this panel. I feel really honoured and and humbled to be among some of my heroes here. So thank you. Um, Yeah, I mean, diving right in there, coalface, I'm afraid, is the operative word um, in what I do, because um, we love to gather 100,000 people together in a stadium. We we love to all be together. It's important for our sense of humanity to sing together. I mean, it's been uh, proven, neuroscientifically, the benefits um, of recognizing our sense of community when we do sing together, just what happens in our minds. We want to do this. And yet we know that the carbon footprint of a touring music show is horrendous. Um, And Julie's Bicycle have been, you know, pioneering some tools that we all need to now start to work to, but it's a lot of intractable problems. Um, One really absolute answer is don't go on tour. Don't have musicians traveling the world, just don't do it anymore. Um, And then the other, you know, it's every scale in between that. How do we improve every aspect of it? Um, Robert Del Naja from Massive Attack, as many people would have read in The Guardian recently and on other newspapers, has been uh, working closely with the Tyndall Centre in Manchester to come up with a set of tools um, for us to use to try and improve our practice. Um, You know, we're meeting regularly, (laughs) urgently, uh, to try and shift things. What I will say on the positive side is let's look at what happens when you put up a rock and roll show. The operational challenge of having to get a giant huge piece of scenery, sound, lighting to be up, to be functioning perfectly within 48 hours is immense. The type of people who are able to set their minds to that operational challenge are well versed in achieving extraordinary things within parameters. What we need to do is add some extra parameters, right? We're used to saying we've only got this much time, we've only got this much budget, we've only got this much space. What we need to do is add another budget, which is the carbon budget, and say, how do we achieve all of those things and add this new parameter, which is real, we just haven't had the lens on to see it yet.
4: John, Thank you.
6: Hi, my name is Monica uh, and I'm an artist and also the director of an organization called Plus Peace and we um, do use cultural um, and narrative strategies to build peace and we're, I'm here trying to connect um, the arts, creativity, peace building and climate and one thing I was at the Minga Indigena last night um, session and one thing that was said and it's something I've been thinking about is the, you know, this is fringe, this is a fringe conversation. The main conversation is really talking about market solutions to to climate change and uh and what was said last night was you know the problem is market solutions it's been 500 years of market solutions that have caused climate disaster and the the solution is not a different type of climate solution but it's actually not putting a value on a whale you know price tag on a tree this is because we have to put value on it because they have no worth to us so my question is what role do you think arts have to bring worth to climate. How can we show that? How can we express that? How can we actually embody that narrative? Um, because that's a very different conversation than um, putting price tags on whales and trees.
4: Yes, yeah, thank you. Amazingly great question. Who'd like to pitch in on that one? Anybody from the panel would like to respond to that? Great. Ravi, uh, D- Disha, sorry. Um,
7: I think one thing we need to acknowledge is the fact that We've been accustomed to thinking that they need to have a price tag for them to have a value. But the truth is, you can't put a value on trees. You can't put a value on uh, oceans and ecosystems. They are literally the reason we are alive. And um, that is what essentially art does. Art makes us question the systems that have, you know, it caused the climate crisis, essentially. This capitalist system is essentially why we've had to put a price on natural uh, biodiversity and ecosystems to showcase their value. But the truth is, you cannot measure it with something as fragile as money, because a tree gives more life to quite literally the whole planet. And it's a lot of its members and you can't put a price on that um, because money and the concept of it is so fragile and it, it it just won't compare to the earth and everything it has to offer and I think art has made us question that system and art has made us question if the systems we exist in are the systems that will solve the climate crisis um, and I think that is essentially why we need um, art and culture and so many artistic elements and words and language and it is all of these things that will make us understand how we can address the climate crisis because we need to change how these things are viewed to address the climate crisis.
4: Thank you. Any other, any other comments on that point? Ez. I
5: mean, just to give an example, I'm not sure if any of you in the audience were at um, Stella McCartney's presentation a couple of days ago. But she showed a video that she'd actually made, I think, 20 years ago, because she's been um, campaigning for um, the end to animal mistreatment, the end to the use of leather, the end to the use of fur, uh, the end to the eating of meat. Um, obviously, her mother was a big campaigner in this field in the 70s and 80s that we were all aware of. And she shows this video, which actually when I was growing up in the 80s, we used to see more of this. Just some ab- straight out, uh, a sort of, you know, inverse of Blue Planet, I guess. It was, um, you know, footage taken, very disturbing footage in abattoirs uh, across the whole uh, scene of, um, you know, vile uh, slaughter and, you know, cruelty to animals across the whole spectrum of industrial farming and fur and uh, leather manufacture. And we all sat there in the big Kelvin Grove um, gorgeous museum. And she showed us this video that she'd made 20 years ago. Uh, And there was no one in that audience who wasn't moved by it, who didn't feel a really urgent sense of grief. And she's always been moved by uh, the animal welfare issue just saying, let's not do this anymore and let's not force people to work in these environments anymore. Um, but obviously now it's much broader in that everybody's aware of the impact uh, of this industrial animal slaughter on, on the climate as well. So I think something is impactful just showing us, making us look at that footage and then producing a beautiful bag that's made out of mycelium leather and saying, look, you can have this bag instead of the leather bag. Um, I think that kind of um, approach from a fashion designer is, is really what we need at, across every, every um, outlet really.
8: So yeah just be positive about that and there's a question from the crowd, it's how do we bring this important discussion to the main stage of COP as well as within our own countries? Arts and culture has to be at the heart of
1: development.
4: Well. Uh, I'll just quickly answer that a bit. I think whoever wrote that, I totally agree. Um, art, this is kind of what we're, we've done this big piece of research. There is only one uh, arts council that we know internationally that has structurally put in place. That's Argentina. There might be others, but, but uh, we certainly didn't find them. That has structurally put Alongside the, the, the climate commitments of that country, is structurally put alongside their cultural policy. It's happening. Certainly, there's in, in, our, in the UK, there's a, a lot of um, work that's gone into it. But actually, what we need is to meet, really in a really hardcore way, is to meet the, uh, the demands of, of the, that the scientists are making on us to change what we do in order to really unleash, unlock that potential of culture, the arts, creative industries, to really do uh, what needs to be done, and we need to do it fast. And one of the things I would say, Sega, is yes, you're right, lots of people are doing lots of stuff, but, you know, I think culture has been a bit behind as a as a system it's an ecosystem just like any others and that system really has got because we've got such exponential capacity to drive change in all the ways that chiara described it's an incredibly important responsibility and we now need to just get on with it as quickly as we can and that includes the structure of culture as well as all these amazing people who are doing stuff it needs to be Embedded right into the system of of how we work, the processes of how we work. Does anybody from the panel want to um, comment on that, that point or any of the points that Sega's just made?
1: Lee
9: Armstrong, he was part of the group organising the Climate March and Rally in Birmingham. He's also a Labour councillor at the city council. Thanks for talking to us, Ollie Armstrong. Uh, how many people do you reckon were out in Birmingham then?
8: We think maybe three thousand. It is quite hard to tell when people are kind of marching en masse. Uh, but yeah, the process—well, definitely the biggest rally I, I've been part of, and a lot of people said that too. There was many of us.
9: And why did you want to march? What is the point of it?
8: Uh, we were we gathered to uh, to cry out for not just climate change but climate justice. We know the powerful and the rich can increasingly uh, make decisions in response to climate breakdown that still put the least down and still crush the least to off and the vulnerable. So we're crying out for justice and action that lifts up uh, those who are struggling nationally and internationally.
9: So what does climate justice mean in practical terms?
8: Well, in practical terms, it means uh, it means we avoid. A uh, narrow minded and mean spirited uh, borderline eco fascism where we have closed borders, where we have a, a greenwashed response to climate breakdown that just puts more money in the pockets of the already rich. It means uh, putting the trillions of pounds in dollars in internationally to uplift those countries that are massively struggling already. It means system change that we have good green jobs for the working class nationally and internationally. And on all of those things, all of our current leaders are totally failing.
9: And how will marching make them do what you want?
8: So marching is a gathering point, right? Like, it's symbolic. It's both literal and metaphoric. So we come together. And I absolutely agree. If you just march and you just protest, it doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. But I think we can do a big shout-out to the Black Lives Matter movement who raised the bar on not just gathering and protesting, but pushing for actual change. So like, I think we should treat all climate, as like the Colston statue. I think we should be acting. So to answer your question, what we do next is we gather and we push for political change. We, we push people to pull all the levers they hold to act as if this really is an emergency, not just a nuisance.
9: And do you, when you look at the world leaders when they were in Glasgow, do you, take, do you believe that they are serious, that they get it?
8: I think that you can ask that question shows that no, right? I think even they don't know they do. I think we've got a disconnect with those who hold the most power. Just don't see the impact on the most vulnerable right now, so we've got this real disconnect. Yes, there has been some action, but no, none of it is yet good enough.
9: Right, so what else do you want before this COP26 wraps up? Well,
8: it's not about when it wraps up, to be honest. It's no, 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 you're
9: absolutely right. Uh, you're right, it's, it's ongoing, of course. But yeah, I mean, when they all clear work. off back home and, and yeah. sort of start dealing with domestic issues again.
8: Ah, uh, well, yeah, well, what we want is people to hold to their promises, right? Like the same in all kinds of politics, and Across the world, that's what people are crying out for, politicians who stick to the promises they've made and act on them. Politicians talk about difficult decisions all the time, but they never seem to be a inconvenience on their lives. We want to see politicians act on the promises they've made on climate, on the climate emergencies they've declared, and transform their policies and legislation locally, regionally, nationally, internationally, so people's lives are saved because it's an emergency.
9: Yeah. Walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Absolutely. Well said. (laughs) Thank you very much, Councillor Armstrong. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Take care. Yorkshire Council.
1: No power! No power! No farmers. No power! No power! No power! No power! No power! No power! No power!
10: No power! No power! No power! No
1: power!
10: No 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 Iva,
1: Eva, Eva, Yao,
10: Yao, this is no longer a climate conference. This is now uh, a global North Greenwash Festival. <laughs> a two week long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah! <laughs> the most affected people in the most affected areas still remain unheard. And the voices of future generations are drowning in their greenwash and empty words and promises. But the facts do not lie, and we know that our emperors are naked. <laughs> to stay below the target set in the Paris Agreement, and thereby minimizing the risk, of setting off irreversible chain reactions beyond human control we need immediate, drastic, annual emission cuts unlike anything the world has ever seen and as we don't have the technological solutions that alone will do anything even close to that that means we will have to fundamentally change our society and this is the uncomfortable result of our leaders' repeated failure to address this crisis the current emissions rates our remaining CO2 budgets to give us the best chances of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius will be gone within the end of this decade and the climate and ecological crisis of course doesn't exist in a vacuum it is directly tied to other crises and injustices that date back colonialism and beyond crises based on the idea that some people are worth more than others and therefore have the right to steal others to exploit others and to steal their land and resources and it is very naive of us to think that we could solve this crisis without addressing the root cause of it but this is not going to be spoken about inside the cop it's just too uncomfortable it's much easier for them to simply ignore the historical depth that the countries of the global north have towards the most affected people and areas.
11: Do you have a conscience? Yes. Oh, that was quick. Okay, so yes. yes. That's a good answer. Do you have a conscience? Do you act on your conscience? Often. Often. And that's an honest answer. It's, it's you know, none of us are perfect. No, no. no. You know, so we, 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 sometimes we don't act on our conscience. We, 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 we do what's expedient. We do what's easy. We do it and so on. Okay. You're in. Okay. You're, you're a citizen of Conscience Land. So you raise three fingers, society, environment, economy, individual, social responsibility. Now you're a citizen of Conscience Land and you have duties. Do we live in an economy? Yes, we do. Is it the right one? No. Do we live in a society? Yes. Is it working? Kind of not. We live in an environment. Is it working? Well, we're hurting it. So this all has to be balanced. We got to bring this back into balance. Okay. So that's the last that's thing. And the ISR, individual social responsibility. It's not CSR. It's not corporate social. It's individual. We're all in. We're all responsible for our actions and our decisions. Okay. So here's the duties. Your duties in Conscience Land. What do you imagine the first duty of some of, of, of a citizen of Conscience Land is? What is the first duty, as you go around and you're in, and making decisions? Um, live your conscience. You know, uh, uh, live out your conscience. Be conscious of your of your decisions. Okay, so that's number one. Uh, and the second part is um, is uh, spread it around. So now you're officially with these two guys. You're officially a, a citizen of conscience land, so that empowers you to ask the same questions of your loved ones, of your family, your friends, your your neighbors, or you know anybody you meet, as strangers on the street. It's a great conversation starter, by the way. Um, you know, so you can use that to ask them simply, "Do you have a conscience, and do you act on your conscience?"
0: So, friends out there, listeners out there, do you have a conscience, and? Are you acting on it? This was, what's your name, sorry? a Claus, Sustainer Claus.
12: I'm Jojo Mater, um, co-founder with Scottish illegal pioneer and barrister, Polly Higgins, actually. Oh, the, 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 my dear departed friend, Polly Higgins, and his dad, sadly. Um, co-founder of stop ecocide international so we're a, a growing organization a sort of central communications hub for the growing global movement to criminalize serious harm to nature or ecocide
0: so the first time i properly heard of you was when a precedent was set um, and ecocide was first ever mentioned in law is that does that is that happen last year or is that not yet
12: so eco Ecocide is a relatively new term. Right. It it was first coined in 1970, but it's only come into prominence in the last couple of years. Um, So the first call for it to become an international crime came from two small island states at the end of 2019. Mm That was Vanuatu and the Maldives. Since then, there are many more um, governments and parliaments talking about ecocide, Mm. um, and that that conversation is growing very fast internationally. Some interesting promises coming out of COP26 this year, but none of them are really doing more than kind of tweaking at the edges of what really needs to be done. Um, and we actually need to change the rules of the game in order to set those parameters for government and business and civil society to move in the right direction. And the easiest way to do that is to simply put a new parameter in place that says, this is the thing you can't do. Mm. Go do wonderful stuff, but you can't do this.
0: So do you feel that because a lot of the conversations that we're having at the moment is surrounding, surrounded by like the concept of systemic change and how we really need a systems change, and so do you feel that like ecocide being used as a mechanism would be a form of systemic change that we need.
12: Absolutely. And and it's not about, you know, destroying a system. I think you can't just rip a system up and start again without causing huge humanitarian problems Mm. um, and environmental ones. Mm. What is needed is a shift that can move the whole system in a new direction. Um, and these are kind of very strategic uh, interventions that can do that. And ecocide is one of those, we believe. You know, you add that to the list of international crimes, suddenly you're not just saying, you know, you can't use more than this many toxins in this context. Mm. You're actually saying threatening severe harm and destruction of the environment isn't international crimes. So does, in
0: terms of ecocide, would that, so that's obviously linked to nature, but is it also linked to climate justice? And is it, what are, what are kind of the parameters and... Um, points within an ecocide law that you'd like to see. Where would the um, yeah? What are the parameters?
12: Well climate change we see essentially as a symptom of which ecocide is a root cause. Mm-hmm. So you could reduce emissions as much as you like but if you carry on actually destroying ecosystems you're not going to be able to make the kind of difference at the climate level that you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and as regards to the climate justice question I mean one of the, I mean ecocide also kind of touches into the heart of that because most ecocides happen, not all but many happen in the global south and in poorer communities and countries while the decisions that lead to those destructive activities are taken in the Wealthy North. So if you put in place a crime that targets those individuals who are at the highest point in that hierarchy of command, then you're really starting to rebalance that dynamic.
0: And who, who are the kind of people that would be prosecuted? Would it be both governments and companies <laughs> and individuals? Like how many layers would the ecocide law cover?
12: The way that it has been recently drafted as a legal definition is intended as an additional crime at the International Criminal Court, and that court prosecutes individuals. And actually, that's very important because at the moment, you know, corporate decisions they are obviously made by actual people, but those people effectively are protected by a kind of corporate veil. You know, the corporations may get fined and may get a slap on the wrist, but if you actually want to change behaviour individual criminal responsibility is second to none. Because if you're in that decision-making position and you know that what you're about to decide could threaten severe um, and long-lasting or widespread damage to the environment, and that's gonna potentially put you in, you know, in the same kind of dock as a war criminal, you're gonna think very carefully about that because your stock value, your insurability, your company reputation will all be on the line.
0: Bring it back to the people and our values.
12: Absolutely, yeah
0: um is there any example of a particular eco side that you've stopped or that you've been working on something so that people can have a kind of tangible
12: um,
0: understanding of an action that you take
12: Well, the thing with this law is it's not in place yet so it's not like i can point to an Mm. instance where it's been used but actually that's quite important because law doesn't act um you know in you know going backwards it's not retroactive and actually that's really important because the idea of uh, recruiting support from different nations um behind an international law is a question of a certain amount of time because obviously there's momentum that needs to be grown a certain number of states that need to, to, to back it two thirds of members of the ICC would need to back it and what that does is it shows that this, this law is approaching and insurers and political advisors are already telling us they can see it coming mm-hmm. it's just a question of when but the thing is we estimate four to five years to get this law in place. That's really important, that time period, because if, if this came into play tomorrow, there'd be chaos. Mm. You know, and also you'd alienate loads of people, mm. um, you know, corporations, governments wouldn't know where to put themselves, courts wouldn't cope. It, you know, it's just not possible. But you put it a, f- a little way down the line, and we know that governments can act faster than they say they can, because look at COVID and how quickly people mm. took action there. But if you have something coming down the line a few years hence, you get to have all the constructive conversations. You get to have it be empowering. Effectively, this is a parameter that is actually now being called for by business leaders. They're saying, give us the guidance. But you have to have a time for them to be able to shift direction and move in the right way. And, of course, that varies a little bit from place to place. There are some countries in the world where, you know, this is super-duper urgent and, you know probably does need to come in as soon as possible there are others where a a bit of a time scale to actually have industry completely change direction will be really important but the important thing is to see it coming
0: You know, this shouldn't be a shock. It's like a a market policy individual indicator, isn't it? It's the way it's a target to look towards to then base your actions and um, strategy around.
12: Exactly, exactly. In fact, we're we're running an event tonight um, independently in Glasgow um, around this, this idea that potentially, I mean, imagine if we actually all responded to the call of the young people, the Fridays for Future imagine if in every workplace, every institution, every government office, every Friday was actually about the future? Yeah. Can you imagine if people actually took that time? I mean, you know, we're in a, an existential crisis on a global level. A few hours of everybody's week is not a lot to ask. And what better parameter to drop into the mix? Ecocide Law. Say, right, in your particular industry, with your particular expertise, how will you respond to having this new rule in place? Have you spoken to them?
0: Are you in touch with them, and is there like some kind of collaboration going on with them being able to kind of support you because they've got a mass movement behind them?
12: Well, interestingly, some of their key spokespeople will be at that event tonight: right. Gia Bastida, Jerome Foster, Alessandro Villasenor, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and others. So, yeah, it's it's very much um, aligning. Yeah,
0: great. I'm happy to hear it. Thank you for joining me.
12: <laughs> You're really welcome.
13: you doing? Same as. Can you tell me your name please? Yes, my name's Nick Mulvey. We're here underneath this ancient yew tree and we've just finished a a morning of of immersion in the yew tree, learning about the history of the yew tree and the significance of of this ancient ancestor in this time. I feel uh, a full mix of... um, of relief and happiness and uh, some exhaustion from the last days of, of being in the cop and traveling to the cop and, and offering my songs last night at a concert. Mm. But above everything, I feel so inspired. Mm. I feel this joy that comes with this inspiration, you know, because it's truly, um, truly an inspiration for these times. Um, the bewilderment I feel, and the bewilderment we feel, as uh, the political process um, really has a counterpart. It, it's really just half the story to feel frustration and, and 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 bewilderment and confusion. You know, there's another half to it, which is what's emerging in this time, what's coming through, which is um, the deep wisdom of this land, supported by elders and wisdom keepers from other traditions around the world who come from places like Polynesia, Central America, um, all over the world, wisdom keepers coming to help us understand uh, what it means to live in sacred reciprocity with the land, to have indigenous belonging to the land, to help us understand what was interrupted, how we lost connection with the land a long time ago, and helping us understand why that's really important now, Mm. why that's really important in this moment of crisis and opportunity. Mm. How our loss of connection with our land, how the trauma that came from our separation from the land has been embodied and internalized over so many generations and enacted upon the world through clo- colonial... colonization. Yeah. Colonization. Colonialization. colonialization. Colonialization, through corporate colonialization. colonialization today. And If I keep talking for a second, because it comes to me, um, I hear people talking about, like, frustration with the repetition of the word climate, and climate change, and climate crisis, and climate justice, because, in a way, climate is this is um, a, a deflection away from talking about colonialisation and corporate colonialisation. Mm. Um, and so uh, understanding what it is and what, what's happening and what's happened is, is, is a big thing and I'm not an expert. I'm
0: totally at the cop here to learn. Right, right, right. But, um, yeah. It's true because essentially there are so many elements of COP that are happening at the moment there's inside the tables where the you know, the political negotiations are happening and people are really quite stressed and tense. And then there are these beautiful fringe events whereby people have come to teach us how to be with the land yes. and how we've forgotten to even listen to our elders. And these are the kind of events during COP that make me really feel grounded and back to my own roots and knowing who I am right Mm -hmm. and in most of these events there's music that's linked to the ceremony because music has been such an inherent part of our nature right Mm -hmm. which is also a difficult word alongside climate alongside alongside hypocrisy do you learn anything from the kind of music that you're hearing during these indigenous people's ceremonies and do you take away the music as part of the importance of it Absolutely. Yeah,
13: I mean, I learn when I hear music, I learn about a a, a re-understanding or a new understanding of what music can be and what music's about. And actually, like, the understanding we receive from our culture about music is often in many ways quite shallow. You know, as much as I love popular music, as much as I love the music industry, my industry, I love it as well. I, I, I'm a part of it and I embrace it and I love it. Don't dismiss it. But like, Music can be a, 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 a you know a force to realign an, an individual's physiology right in front of you w- with with the environment around it's like it's it's like shocking in an amazing way like what music can really be and and it kind of takes you into the fabric of reality like what what are we made of right here and
1: um
0: it's neurologically proven to evoke um, and a lot of emotion in us and, and you sure. feel that just even standing at the front of your gig and you see people crying yeah. or, or elated and screaming and it's like we become animals finally at yeah. once because we're listening to this music that's changing us it? which is why there's a lot of conversation in the music industry at the moment of music being the way that we can finally connect people to where we need to go going forwards because we need to feel emotional right and you know, we need to join this journey emotionally and not necessarily through thinking all the time no
13: I and mean, to bring it down into our bodies to yeah. bring it down into our voices and in, into our hearts and, and that's you know we're so often um in our heads mm. that viewed from the head bringing it down into our hearts mm. bring it down to, you kind of look, think oh yeah like you know but as you do that and when, as you do that, like, the the possibilities change, you know, reality moves, our options move, you know, like, we feel each other so differently, we get real, we get, like, we, we get vulnerable, we express our fears, we express our joys, our ecstasies, you know, and we're, like, I, I feel that's my role that's my work with my music you know it's it's a very felt thing mm. as a, as a creator it's a very felt thing like i have the guitar in my hands the guitar after all is just a resonating box i place to my chest you know so so and i feed information directly into my feeling center it's a non it's a it's not primarily mm. cerebral thing it's mm. a secondary cerebral thing I, I i do engage my mind and i think about choices with my lyrics at a certain point but after it's a body first thing and so and I'm literally using the box, the guitar on my chest to open up my heart, my mm. feeling center. And then our physiologies are very similar mm. just by virtue of being human. So then as I do it inwards to my body, it also broadcasts out to your body and right. we're opening hearts and that's my job. And then I'm putting words in. Then I'm putting these, these things I care about uh, that I also allow through a feeling mm. felt process. Just these suggestions. And so then you get I'm appreciating more and more at my gig, people are getting these experiences where their their physiology is being opened up, their hearts being opened up, and then these ideas are being connected and you have this like, this insight, yeah. this eureka moment where the people go, yes, okay, true, yeah. I know that
0: now. And in knowing that and feeling that and being kind of not just ch- a champion of um, enacting people to. Realise what this change in the climate is going on through words, almost politically as well as through song. Um, you're one of the rare treasures of musician that we have at the moment that's doing that. And without putting too much, you know, onus or pressure on to other musicians, how would you get them to engage in this fight? And how, where do you see that their um, purpose is? I'm wary of
13: like, pushing and pointing mm. fingers, I mean, maybe there is a moment for it I get frustrated with some people with a huge platform and just like, where are you, like, but I think it's a, um, it's a process of each individual, each artist with a, with a voice, with a platform going on, you know, however long it takes to get to that point where you realize that, um, staying afraid Preserving your own career, your own—you know, like not speaking your truth. Like it's gonna run out. Like you don't, you don't have. That doesn't work either.
0: Yeah. You know, there's two things. One is not speaking the truth, which is potentially what is going on but maybe they haven't yet found their truth so maybe yeah that's kind of
13: of what i mean it's about finding your truth
0: maybe they need there needs to be some yeah this global awakening of what 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 our values are etc etc and everybody needs to think
13: deeply before they pick up their tools yeah in whatever job you're in right now stop and think so deeply what is my motivations because if i'm not in charge of my motivations you can be pretty sure you're perpetuating the toxicity and the odd stuff because because if you're not owning your moves then and the, all the all the garbage and all the stuff is. So everyone needs to think carefully, and exactly that, like...
0: And if there was one thing you could say to people to activate them to become part of the climate fight, what would you advise them to do?
13: I feel a, uh, I feel something quite introspective, and it's, um, the question at this time is, not about the future of humanity it's about the presence of eternity this point for me flips the script it doesn't change the urgency of this moment I'm not bypassing saying like oh let's just all be something more spiritual or more meditative." but it's about like about bringing into our actions today, into ourselves into our conversations as we go today like Allowing us to speak from the stillness and the peace within un- within ourselves, rather than the fears and the noise.
1: That's what it's about. Beautiful. Thank All you. All right. <laughs> nice
0: Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways
14: to save the planet. yes, it's all looking good.
0: A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great, let's dive in. This question of interconnectedness, right? Art and nature are interconnected, yet we're so disconnected from art and nature the systems that we're in currently are so disconnected to art and nature as you say art is put at the bottom of the pile of importance and nature we use as a dumping ground and actually everything is connected right Mm. and nature has the answers already nature has all the technologies we're just not looking in the right places for the innovative technologies because they exist now you're looking at the melvin sheldrake book and you're realizing how wonderful the wood wide web is underground and how much, you know, how much wealth, how much of a wealth of knowledge that gives us. So based on this concept of everything being interconnected, we need to start thinking about these systems that are all connected. Yeah. So can you see a future that is based on a new economic model of interconnectedness?
14: Yes, they, that is already starting to exist. Um, if you look at Economists like Carlotta Perez and Kate Rayworth and Kate Ricketts and Mariana Mazzucato, interestingly, all women, they are together evolving a new economic paradigm. And Kate Rayworth expresses it very well, I think, uh, in her Donut Economics, with the idea that it doesn't make any sense to have an economics that Either overuses resources, so exhausts the future, or creates too much uh, waste or um, disruption, basically, and again ruins the future that way. So um, you don't have to be saintly about it, you just have to be pragmatic. If you want a world that you can continue to live in, then you have to have a different economics. At the moment, the economics we have says that if something doesn't have a price it doesn't have a value so you know air doesn't have a price so we'll just put any amount of shit into the air because nobody owns it so we can we can do it um so there is a new economics growing and it's head to head with the old economics which of course is the economics of the establishment so um they've got they've got the power of being entrenched but they're losing you know the interesting thing about modern monetary theory is that it's essentially an acknowledgement of the idea that it's humans who create value they they decide that something is valuable it's it's not a given so we can change our ideas about what is valuable and we can extend them at the moment we have a very narrow notion of what is valuable and it relates entirely to our particular short-term ambitions Um, that's going to change it is changing
0: it's brilliant it is the the value of our health our well-being our future and in any political system currently the external factors are not factored into policy, and Mm. so I've been doing a lot of work within the multiple benefits of green economies, and you can take health into account, you can take biodiversity into account, you can take so many things into account that are not accounted for because there's not a monetary value for them. I won't
1: study war no more.
0: I hear
13: my call of duty, yes, I hear my call of duty and it is a roar from the beaches of
1: Dunkirk. I know my
13: grandfather remains, remains alive to the shimmer, shimmer of the
0: living rain. Thank you again to the amazing speakers, Sally Mulhoek. Julie's Bicycles, Alison Tickell and Chiara Badiali, as Devlin, Dishar Ravi, Ollie Armstrong, we even had a little bit of Greta and the Climate March, Sustainer Clause, Stop Ecocide, the wonderful Brian Eno, as always, and the equally wonderful Nick Mulvey.
13: Thank you.